Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Scott Hamilton as my guest. Scott is a researcher, a policy advisor, and the author of Sold on the River, a book where he explores how robber barons and Wall Street traders cornered Australia's water market. What happens when you trade water as a commodity, remove all limits and regulations, and invite hedge funds and traders as liquidity providers? Exposed that way, I'd say you can guess the answer. Yet that's exactly the experiment Australia runs since the late 80s, with a strong push since the 2000s and the millennium drought. In Sold on the River, Scott and his co-author Stuart Kells go into the depth of that scary story, which we review today. Now, water trading isn't inevitably wrong, and it even sounds like a cool prospect on the paper. But this is the story of how not to do it if you want that nice theory to translate into reality. Last stop before we start, if you like what you hear, if you like that podcast, there's actually a simple yet powerful way to help me. Take that episode and share it with two of your friends. Grab their phone, subscribe them to the podcast and tell them about what you liked. Please do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. Hello. Terrific to be here. Well, I have to say I'm excited to dive into today's topic because it's fascinating by many aspects. But I'll keep a bit the expectations for now and we'll start with a postcard. And you're sending a postcard from Melbourne. Yes. So I'm here from Melbourne, which is the capital city of the state of Victoria in Australia, down under. Um, has been nominated in the past as the world's most livable city and has recently got a new title, which is the place to have the longest lockdown in the world, over hundreds of days in lockdown. But the really great news is we're about to come out of lockdown at the end of this week. So our, we won't have to stay at home and only leave for four or five reasons. So it's going to be great to be out and about. Is there a link between the fact that you were in the longest lockdown in the world and the fact that you wrote a book? <laughs> well, probably helped, I would say. <laughs> yes, they, they've said that book sales have actually gone up quite a lot during the COVID era because people had more time on their hands. And it did allow me to focus on doing a lot of writing during that period of time. Also meant doing a lot of Zoom calls as part of the interviews and phone calls and those things. So, yeah, it, it wasn't wasted, certainly. So actually, talking of the topic of the book, there's something which I'd like to understand here. Really, that's going to be a question for the muggles, so sorry for that. But you're explaining how you were intending with your co-author Stuart Kells to dive into bipartisanship and examples of bipartisanship. Yes. And you ended up having a book about water trading and about the Murray-Darling River Basin. What's the link between those two? Yeah, it is really a fascinating story. So Stuart Kells and, and myself, so Stuart's my co-author, We started out researching bipartisanship 
in politics. So looking at all the reasons why different sides of the political divide come together and when it happens and when it doesn't. Because one of our theses is that if we're going to solve wicked problems like climate change, we're going to have to have more bipartisanship, not less, or multi-partisanship actually is what we were sort of working on. So as part of that research, we were interviewing politicians and um, key players. And one of the things that kept coming up as both an example of when it has worked and we've seen some progress made, and when it has failed and failed really badly, is the Murray-Darling Basin, which is the biggest natural asset in this country. It is the most important river system in terms of the country. In terms of its size, I think you might be interested, its size is bigger than France. So to give you a scale of what we're talking about, um, it is literally huge. Talking of the scale, let me just try to understand that a bit better. You mentioned that you are in Melbourne, which is the capital of one of the states. And one of the things to know, I guess, about Australia is that it's a federal government and that the Murray-Darling River Basin is across several states, right? Yes, that's correct. And that plays a role in the story we're going to tell, I guess. It absolutely does. And the fact that we're a federation based on the Westminster system is really important and how the states came together um, back in 1901 is when we became a federated country um, and we had a Commonwealth government, which was then went on. One of the big issues at that time was what the powers of the Commonwealth government, the federal government, were going to be versus the powers of the states. And there were huge fights over this and one of the big fights was over water. Who controlled the water? And in the end, the decision was made to leave that power, that vested power in our constitution, with our states. So that's Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, and now the Australian Capital Territory is also part of the system as well. Just before we dive into the topic of water and water trading, you know, I mentioned in our short discussion before recording that I had a discussion with another citizen of Melbourne, Mina Gulli, a couple of weeks ago. And I was just wondering if you're a bit more interested in sustainable development and climate change down under, or if really it's a coincidence. No, I think that um, so Australia, whilst uh, you, you would have noticed in the recent news media that Australia is a laggard when it comes to action on climate change. So um, we're not the leading country in the world. And in fact, there's a big debate going on right now in Australia about whether we even commit to net zero by 2050, which all the other G7 and all the G20 nations have already committed to. And we've got relatively weak 2030 targets. So we're generally a laggard. But the other thing is, though, that we actually, because we're the driest inhabited continent on the wor in the world, so we're extremely dry in terms of rainfall and water availability, it means that we also see the brunt of climate change really quickly. And the sorts of severe droughts, bushfires and extreme weather events that come with climate change hit Australia really hard and have already started to. We had our black summer um, a couple of years ago that you would have no doubt heard about and also massive droughts in terms of the Murray-Darling Basin. So all of these issues mean that the challenge for having sustainability, particularly with water, but also other natural resources, is really critical to this country. 
and that's why you, you see the, a, a lot of effort going into trying to manage and share and make best use of what little resources we've got in this place. So we scratched a bit the surface about this Murray-Darling River Basin. You said it's bigger than France, and I took a couple of additional facts from your book. I'm not trying to be more clever than I am. So the Murray-Darling River Basin produces 40% of Australia's food. It holds 3 million inhabitants. It flows through those three states that you mentioned, and it creates $24 billion of yearly agriculture value. I don't know that figure, by the way, is before or after this trading thing. That might be something we discuss at some point. But you mentioned Australia's independence in 1901, and you mentioned these early stages of water management. In the book, you show how water was central to all of that, but to which extent? Was it like the head topic on which everything else was built around? Yes, so it was a, uh, it was a critical topic, and again, being the driest inhabited continent, and in terms of the Murray River, that is one of the biggest of the rivers, part of the Murray-Darling Basin, So, and just give a sort of sense of scale, so more water flows through the Amazon in a day than flows in the Murray in a year. So it's a massive difference, so very dry amount of resource is the first thing to sort of understand. And a long history of Indigenous peoples in this country um, had a very close connection with water and being able to use the, this limited resource to feed themselves for literally 70,000 years. So a long history, and we go into that in quite a lot in the book as well because that comes important, and particularly when we start talking about the future. And so the sort of sense I'm giving is that water here um, in particular is an extremely important resource And that was known at the time by um, a lot of the white settlers, which is who the people that drafted the constitution back in 1900 and where the debates happened. And as I mentioned, so water was one of those key debates. So largely they gave up the power of taxation, foreign affairs and those sorts of things and defence to the Commonwealth, but kept um, particularly the water power in particular, and there's a specific section in the constitution which talks about it. But also, though, so those service delivery powers remain vested in the states at the time. And that caused a lot of challenge in terms of how we're going to manage this highly interconnected Murray-Darling Basin in particular. So this, the most important of our natural resources, covering those four states plus a territory and having to work out how the power was going to be shared and the debates that sort of followed. Now that you explain that, I start to understand why at the end of our story, there will be several markets just because there are several states. So I guess two things now clicked in my head. So it's not too bad. It means that my brain sometimes works a bit. But let's start <laughs> with the beginning of that story. You explained that water trading, which is going to be our main topic for today, water trading started quite informally in the 1960s. What was its shape at that time? And Why did the authorities think they had to evolve that into a more structured approach? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, and these are fascinating stories. So post-World War II, one of the ways that we as a country saw um, in terms of job growth and economic growth was to build major water projects. And you may have heard about the Snowy Hydroelectric Scheme. Um, which was a massive nation-building scheme around this time. And essentially, 
that was designed to harness what resources were available in our snowy mountains um, and use that to supply electricity, but also to provide irrigation to the nearby areas. So that was a very much focus. So we sort of talk about this was the this was the reign of the engineers, Sir John Monash, and these people were the ones that were really making the big decisions in this country. So now, as we and so we at that time and leading up till probably the nineteen seventies thereabouts, there was some informal training, and one of the classic examples that one farmer may have had a little bit water left over from their irrigation plot and another farmer needed a bit more for to put in his rice crop or his cotton crop or whatever it might be. So he'd say, well, you can have a couple of megs, a couple of megalitres of water for a slab of beer. That's 24 cans of beer. Just <laughs> um, So that was the sort of first examples of water trading that we saw. Um, and then up until the 1980s, and that's when it starts to get very interesting because that's around about the time of Thatcherism and Reaganism and free market economics. And so everyone was on the, I think, on the bandwagon of thinking that um, markets are fantastic and what we want to see is small government and lots of free markets. And markets were going to be the answer to our problems. It was going to be the invisible hand of Adam Smith that was going to solve our problems. Now, as the story goes, which we'll get into, but even Adam Smith was very, and this was back in the 1800s, was very wary to say, well, you can have markets and they can be useful, which we would still say now, but you've got to have integrity behind those markets. You've got to have fair playing fields. You've got to have good information. You've got to have good compliance and all these other things to ensure that the market was going to at least give you the outcomes that you were desiring. But even at the top of that hype in the 80s of the Reaganism and the Thatcherism and this liberal approach of economy, the countries which were going into water trading didn't go to the extreme that Australia would go. So what is the reason for Australia to be, in this case, the best of the liberalism pupils, if I may say so? <laughs> so, yeah, and this is, again, a fascinating part of the story. And even now, we are still being looked upon by Colorado in terms of what we did in terms of the water markets. And some profess that we are the most advanced in terms of our water markets in the world and those things. But we think that's missing a major point. So that context that we were talking about, so this idea that markets are terrific and we want small government, lots of free markets and free market in enterprise, economic rationalism, I suppose, is another way to think about it. And was at the same time that we were to experience another one of our massive droughts. So every so many years, and I think we talk about the NOAA effect in terms of the water and the climate system in this part of the world, every certain number of years there would be a massive drought. And what we were coming up against, and we were at the beginning of in this time, and we and it was to last sort of over around 10 years, was the millennium drought which was the worst drought that we'd ever seen. And what that was the beginning of is the impact of global warming and climate change starting to see major shifts in our water systems. So at this time when we had a great enthusiasm by politicians, by 
policymakers, by lots of community groups. And it's really fascinating that both the environment groups as well as the farmers end up buying into this approach. So it was everybody was getting on the bandwagon or drinking the Kool-Aid is <laughs> um, one of our ways that we would put it. So everyone was on it and we had this massive drought. So it basically, and I'm putting it in sort of very simple terms for the audience and just to sort of get across. So this massive problem and what was seen as an elegant solution, which was the market. So by going into the market and going harder and quicker and further, than any other nation, we thought that we'd be able to deal with this problem of drought and a very over-allocated resource, which was causing major impacts. And at the bottom of the Murray-Darling system, so this is this massive system of uh, rivers and estuaries and is what is known as the lakes down at the bottom um, in in, um, South Australia, um, which are Ramsar wetlands. And these lakes, had, and this, they're very hotly um, contested part of the world, by the way, but these lakes were basically stopping flowing to the sea and that was having major impacts on the wildlife and bird population and all those things. So these were the things that the country was being confronted with and so this elegant solution of water markets was what sort of was made things happen, I think, quicker and faster than elsewhere. So that means that the idea there was that if someone was to farm sustainably, to use less water or to modernize the way they irrigate, they would be rewarded because they would have a bit more of water that they could then sell on the market. So on the paper, that sounds really perfect. Mm. Yes. So I wonder how things can turn bad from there. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and look, that was, and we go into this uh, quite a bit in the book is, Part of our, um, one of the problems was the market was never really designed what specific outcomes it was really looking for, and that's one thing we think needs to happen now. But broadly, the concept or the public policy principle was that using a market-based mechanism, we could make sure that this diminishing resource and this amount of water would go to what was going to be its best use as you were saying. So it's most efficient use, all those things where it would be most valued and provide the biggest benefit to the economy and to the country and the people within the community. That was what the idea was behind bringing and going in hard in the market. The fascinating thing is that you demonstrate in the book how it's almost the opposite that happens, that somehow water got to where it doesn't make much sense and the best use place just dried out. But before jumping into that, that's just kind of jumping into conclusions, you show in the book how there are two turning points in the design of that market, which can be traced back as the root cause of why it went quite bad. And the first is that the land and the water were disconnected. Yes, yeah. And that sounds so much as a bad idea that I don't understand why that decision was taken at first. Yeah, so this was a critical point and let's go into that a bit more in a minute but going back to that discussion which we were talking about in 1900 when Alfred Deakin was um, who became one of our first prime ministers in this country was a very important politician in this country actually traveled to California and that's where he learned about this idea of these irrigation schemes and how you could encourage development and 
those sorts of things. And he came back with the Chaffee brothers, as it turns out, in terms of establishing the first irrigation scheme, which was up in the Mildura area and the Renmark area, which is sort of at the border between Victoria and South Australia and New South Wales, that sort of part of the world. So he came back with this idea, but he warned, as you rightly sort of said, we should never separate the water from the land because his concern was that would allow profiteering and monopolies and other powerful players to come in and take advantage of the farmers and the irrigators and the other water users. So he warned against that. Now, in terms of making making the market, the water market, one of the first things that, that, that was done was actually to disconnect the water from the land. So we call this unbundling is what it's described as. Now, we actually think that that in itself wasn't necessarily a bad thing, provided there were sufficient rules around it and ways to manage that. So let's just take that for a little bit further for a minute, that if I've got a farmer within a valley say, so it's within using the same resource, flowing to the same sort of areas. And like that farmer with the slab of beer that I was talking about has a bit of water left over one season and the farmer down the road who's planting something else could use that water. Well, it sort of makes sense to be able to allow that trade to happen. So that in itself, we don't think was the a major problem. What is probably more of a problem, and then it gets worse, <laughs> was the actual allowing other players to come into the water market. So it's not just farmers and users which could trade that water. Anybody could trade that water. You could own and trade that water now. And, of course, that means that people who are very sophisticated, and this was around the time you think about the energy market and the, the boiler rooms and Enrons of the world, so this is the same era that we're now into, starts to think, well, and maybe I can have some arbitrage about this water trading. And one of our um, key findings is that really what we created was a paradise for arbitrage. So basically where they could find wrinkles in this market, and it's not just one market, like there's a report that um, in the recent uh, work that our competition commission did when they did an inquiry recently, there's sort of one broker was monitoring monitoring 30 websites. So 30 different, so there's not just one price is the point that I'm trying to make here. So there's multiple prices, multiple valleys, multiple different types of water rights. So this all provides what we sort of would describe as wrinkles in the market. So places where someone with better information, more speed, more market power can take advantage of that. Let me just make a point here for the stupid, which is here me in that case. Arbitrage is this process of buying something at a certain price with the intent that the price is going to rise and then you can sell it at a higher price. I mean, it's the traditional trading approach. And what you just said is just crazy. 30 different platforms where you can trade water. I mean, that's just deathy. If you're a farmer or an amateur, you have no chance to win against a professional which can just leverage those 30 platforms. And putting that also into context, the market was launched in 1989, right? Yes, that was around a key point of the time. At the time, there's no internet, there's no democratized tools where the basic farmer could stand a chance against the professionals. So what you explain is that it's not debunding the water from the land, which is the critical thing. You say it's letting those other people enter. 
And that's something which you explain in details within the book, how a big amount of water in Australia is owned by banks and quasi-banks. And they were let in the markets because they were supposed to bring liquidity. And you show that it's rather the opposite. I mean, again, it's easy having seen the history and having read your book to say that this was a stupid decision. But still, it really sounds, if you take a bit of common sense, like a stupid decision. Why was it nevertheless designed that way? Do you have an explanation for that? So I think, again, we have to go back into the into what was happening in the world at this period of time and the philosophies of public policy and still in very much an era of let it rip, we would say. So this was in the time we were leading into the global financial crisis and that sort of period. So lots of these ideas behind breaking up markets and enabling more and more trading and less and less regulation, which the global financial crisis was one of the key things that came out of that. And in fact, we talk about uh, the big short and how the guy that features in the big short is investing in water now, um, as the story goes. But uh, so there was this view that, remember, that trading was good, that a market was good inherently, and it would solve our problems. But there wasn't much trading going on at first. So we had this trading, and as I mentioned before, well, now we'd done all this work and unbundling all the different components, the delivery rights, the entitlements, the, and created this short-term and long-term markets, all and multiple different parts. So enormous amount of work that had gone into it and not a lot of trading. So largely, how do we create more trading? Well, we invite other people in, the liquidity is which is um, sort of strange um, play on words, of course. Uh, but um, so invited the banks and these other hedge funds into the market as a way of providing the liquidity. So of making more trades on the basis that um, the value of the water would then be soon found and would go to its best and um, most profitable, which is what it did go, go to, um, but go to its best use. So that was the theory behind it. And so um, Australia let in, this is not just Australian banks, is anyone in the world, banks and hedge funds into a market with the purpose of creating liquidity in the market. Now, that means that we changed the market fundamentally from being a market or a natural resource market into a financial commodity market, as you rightly point in, which is now worth billions of dollars. So we've created this opportunity worth literally billions of dollars for hedge funds and the smartest guys in the room or the smartasses or the boiler rooms to say, here we go, here's an opportunity. But what's the one of the worst things about this part of the story is that we then didn't regulate them. So normally we would have very strong regulations about financial commodity traders. And we have sort of a, um, a body which is called ASIC, which is our Australian Securities and Investments Commission that regulates the financial markets, really, is what their fundamental role is. But we purposely decided as a, as a country and as a, as a series of governments and decisions that we would not regulate the players that were coming into the water markets, that they'd be not bound by the same sort of rules and regulation that you would for normal financial commodities. And at this same time, the value of water was steadily increasing and increasing and becoming more and more tempting to have these 
traders come in and play the market. That means that the market was already designed in a very liberal way with this unbundling of water and land, with this freedom for everyone to enter the market, so with very low regulation. And on top of that, you explain in the book how at the very beginning of that market, there were still some rules, like from one state to the other, you cannot trade more than, I think, 3%, if I recall right. There were a set of rules, but even with that set of rules, it was already the most liberal market in the world. And then even those rules ended up being removed. That is an absolute confidence in the market. I mean, that's really beyond what Adam Smith was saying. Was it never seen as something quite risky to do to just remove any possible boundary and barrier to some extreme trading approach? That's exactly right. And, uh, and so this is, so as part of our research, we're sort of being um, gobsmacked or flabbergasted by this is just crazy is what we were thinking. <laughs> and so how do we let this happen? And just again, decision after decision, but purposely to purposely not regulate this market in the way that it should be and to actually take away any of those protections, such as you mentioned, this certain percentage which could be traded between valleys. So as, as we sort of get into, we mentioned before, there's not just one market, there's multiple different markets which are being played at the moment. And you can trade across valleys, so different valleys, and um, you can move water and carry over water and make trades across these valleys. So if you know something better and quicker than everybody else, you can then play that market and start to manipulate that market. And that's where we also saw the introduction of bots and technology. So if you had the quickest computers um, and the best algorithms, um, when there were key decision points or changes happening in the market. So one of the um, critical features, which is why the history is so important of the Australian history here, is the Barma choke. So it's this very important part of the Murray River which was actually created by an, an earth movement sort of thousands of years ago. But it means there's this choke point in this river. This is probably our biggest river in terms of most important, well, one of our most important rivers. There's this point that only a certain amount of water can get through at any particular time. And generally above the river, so higher upstream, is the where the largely the more productive, the more... Um, the the better soils and I think that the designers expected that essentially that the money and water would flow upstream to above this choke point. But that's not what happened. And essentially it's flowed below that choke point, which is where we've seen massive growth in the last, in the same period of time. And I think it's since 2000, there's been a 1500% in almond farms. So we've seen this massive growth in both almond and olive farms, as it turns out, which are permanent plantings and take a lot of water. And what happened is that essentially the money and the water flowed to where the most money could be extracted from the system. And so we've seen a massive shift in our agriculture and our farms closing up in the above this choke point down into this below the choke where it's largely very sandy soil and in fact in places in america they wouldn't they wouldn't allow you to put plantations there because it's just not where you really should be putting irrigation when um, doing those sort of things 
You mentioned at the beginning that all of that was intended to have the best use of water. And the best use of water would be above the choke, which is kind of a bottleneck in the river, if I try to picture it. And that was also the place where all the irrigation infrastructure was already built and was already available. And instead of that, as the land was cheaper down the choke, it allowed the creation of those mega farms. And mega farms had also this ability to store water and to be playing on the markets because they had a bit more flexibility. Yes. So you have that river. And again, I think your image is very important here, which has a yearly flow, which is below the daily flow of the Amazon River, just to keep that context. And it's just massively used to grow almonds, which doesn't sound like the most clever use of water. But before we go down that rabbit hole, I'd just like to understand something because we are saying water. But if I get it right, there are different types of water which are traded. And that is the second of the turning points you were identifying in the book. Can you just explain us what are these different components of the water rights that you can have on that market? Sure. Um, so, and it is complicated, uh, and it's even complicated across all these different states and these different territories in terms of the rules and what things are called. But largely, we have this unbundling I talked about, so about separating and breaking up parts of the water components. So, we'd have permanent entitlement. So some farmers would have a right to a certain permanent um, amount of water. You would have temporary entitlements. You would have delivery rights. And so you'd have a number of these different components and a water use rights. So you have all these various different rights in these different components. And which is important when we think about this, because then remember, we're not just trading water within a valley. We're also trading across valleys to different valleys and different parts of the system as well and multiple different parts of the rights. So going back into if you want to take advantage of the system, the more complicated it is and the more fragmented the market is, the more wrinkles you can then find and that are arbitrage or um, as the, the, the American pickers is another um, example of um, <laughs> people trying to sell a product on one market and then set selling it again to make a profit. And that's largely what they do. I think that brings me to kind of an elephant in that room. Because you just said that if you would like to make the most profits in that market, that's the way you would design it. And everything we've said so far is like, why did they do that? Well, probably because they believed in the market. Now, if I take another approach, another pair of goggles to look at that, I may think, you know, that it was made on purpose, which is something that you show in the book that maybe, maybe it was an attempt to corner the market. Well, it certainly enabled that to happen. Now, and a bit our thinking even, I'm uh, um, developed over the past few years doing the research for the book, was we sort of originally made the finding or our thesis was that one of the first things that we should do in order to fix the market or to, in turn, to bring it back, <laughs> um, delivering good outcomes from the economy, the social and environmental outcomes we're looking for, would be to say, in order to play in the market of the Murray-Darling Basin, you should have some connection to water in use. So in that case, the Wall Street trader sitting in Singapore or in the Melbourne office <laughs> can't play water just for the pure profit and game of it. You've got to actually be using that water to grow almonds or grow oranges or whatever it might be, or rice or cotton or, or for fishing or whatever you wish. And that was what we were thinking. However, 
part of the ability to corner a market relies on a few different things. One is this ability to have the to get these differences and use information, knowledge, power, speed. Okay. The other thing that became very advantageous to someone that wants to corner the market is this cap. So remember back when we talked about when we designed the market and both, this is really interesting, that both the environment groups as well as the farmers and um, the police all got in on board with this idea that a cap and trade system was a good idea at the time. And we've now seen in carbon markets around the world, except for Australia, that we took ours away. But, but so this idea that a cap and trade system, however, what that cap does, it provides a quite a hard edge for a trader or someone wanting to corner the market because what a someone in this game wants to do, they love scarcity. Scarcity is their friend. <laughs> so we've got this cap, which is a nice hard edge, which and it's a it's a cap that's going down over time. And then the other issue, which we also um, then face, is climate change and more droughts. And so when we have these massive droughts that California's having right now, but we had just a couple of years ago. So if you're uh, wanting to make as much money out of the system as you possibly can, then you love those big droughts and you love that cap and you love climate change, which is really sad because it allows you to get bigger profits and take more money out of the system. And I'll talk about that in a minute as well. I think that's one of the snapshots we have to take to better understand what we said seconds ago about these almond farms. If I get it right, if you have an almond farm and you don't water it for a couple of days, it's not a big deal. Whereas if you have a cattle or a dairy farm and you don't bring water to your cattle, well, they probably die. So you just cannot afford to have one day without water. So if you were into the business of trading water and you need to have this kind of adjustment layer, an almond farm is the perfect adjustment layer because the farmer up or down the choke, which has to bring water to his cattle, is going to buy the water whatever the price. So the scarcity is really playing in your favor and you have this almost false nose of being a farmer because you have that almond farm. Yeah, and that's and you've really, um, it's a really important point that you've just touched on there in, and we go into this. So it's the ability of the trader in the hedge funds. So remember a lot of these big almond farms and big giant agribusinesses are run off one um, a lot of pension fund money. So we've got a lot of Canadian pension funds that own a lot of our big farms and those sorts of things. Um, but also um, hedge funds with lots of play money in terms of hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to play in this market. So the the point I was sort of trying to get to there was that, that those water traders that might have the, the cloak of a big almond farm or those sorts of things or the backing can push the individual farmer or the irrigator to their maximum willingness to pay. And they can do that every time because they don't have the same on costs. So let's use the example of even the, the rice farmer or the cotton farmer that's got to prepare their field. They've got all the capital costs. They've got all these, their timing of plantings limited. They've only got a certain window. They've got labor costs. And so they're got, and they've got to make a profit out of their thing in order to keep their business afloat and thing. Where the trader that sits on the other side of the computer screen <laughs> doesn't have any of those problems. So that enables that if they're 
smart, and we know they are smart because remember we've seen them do it in other markets, and that's what, this is this is what what they do. <laughs> it's their day job. They can push that other side of the equation, their maximum willingness to pay every single time. And this is where the real sort of betrayal and tragedy of the system is. So what that means is that there's nothing left on the table from this market transaction or these transactions and thousands of transactions that's going on. And that's extracting hundreds of millions of dollars out of the basin every year and going into the pockets of wealthy banks and hedge funds. And that's the really sad bit about this story. There's an important piece of context here to give, which are two examples you give in the book. The first is that you say that even if it got better at some point in time, the market was experiencing a Black Monday crash every second day in terms of magnitude, which gives you a sense of the volatility. And the second fact, if I get it right, is that if you were investing $100 a decade ago in that market, right now you have $600 in hands. So if you're a farmer and you rely on water as some of the basic things you need to just keep your business afloat, it means your direct costs were multiplied by six. So those are the consequences of this water market. And that's, yeah, and that's really, um, that's one of the real tragedies of what's happened. And the other couple of errors, and I know we'll run out of time shortly, but the other couple of really important areas or thing issues that we're facing is the impact on the environmental outcomes as well as the indigenous values that are also being really impacted in a real negative way and there's a real disparity or disenfranchise of our indigenous people in Australia in terms of water rights and access to water and those things as well that is a really important part of the story. It's an awesome transition you're offering me there because this is exactly where I wanted to go. The river has its economic services, which we discussed, but also its environmental services. I mean, it's irrigating land, it's irrigating the biodiversity, and you have many aspects of that which are really surprising to me. For instance, there's the aspect of low flow. A river always has to have a certain amount of flow just in order to sustain itself and to keep having like fish life and everything inside that river. And what I discovered in your book is that it wasn't designed like that. So the government had to buy into the market, I think in 2008, to buy a bit of low flow to give back water to the environment. How can it be that when you design a market in the 80s, you totally forget about low flow? Was this a blind confidence that water would keep flowing? Well, I think it was the politics was, the, was one of the real problems in this debate. And um, I think someone described um, recently that where you, you would have, I talked earlier about the carbon wars in Australia at the moment and the water wars. So they're very toxic politics in our country. So it's analogous to what guns are in America would be my sort of way of sort of trying to get that concept across. And this is going back to one of those challenges when we started to move massive amounts of water in this system around. Remember we talked about the choke. So one of the things that changed over this period of time was up the top of the scheme, and we started talking about the snowy hydro scheme and up in the mountains where it snows, there's largely a huge irrigation, which is our Goulburn Valley, which is sort of one of our fruit bowls and pears and all those sort of things that are grown there. And so largely the irrigation scheme, this is above the choke, well above the choke, was using the water from the dams which were built back in 
post-war that I talked about earlier um, to grow their amount. And then the water would then start to behave, the rivers would then essentially start to behave like what was a normal river. And so fish could spawn and those sorts of things. And um, the Murray Cod, the iconic Murray Cod you might have heard about that's lived to 50 and 100 years old and a massive fish, like you can't see my hands, but <laughs> they're amazing. But so, but what happened as we started to artificially or move more water from above the choke and up in these dams down to below the choke, the amount of water that had to get forced through this small juncture was more and more. And so we had this, what we um, talk about is cold water pollution. So because you're taking the water from the bottom of the dam and largely pushing it through this part of the stream, it's not the right temperature in order for fish to spawn and the, those things to happen. So we end up with this cold water pollution that's affecting our biodiversity our endangered species and the other sort of issue that happens there is you actually have to force a lot more water through this wetlands and this part of the river system and that has massive impacts in terms of scouring of the banks and sort of there's examples of um, over a hundred year old trees and indigenous important trees falling into the river and there's uh, an example in terms of some of the people that we talked to about how the local mob the local indigenous group in this area had to move a burial ground because the bodies started to come up from this artificially putting so much water through in times that it wouldn't normally be and so we've done all this in 20 years and going back to that important part of the story at the beginning the Indigenous or the First Nations of Australia had been managing this system for tens of thousands of years. And we're seeing all these major impacts now. And then, of course, climate change. And remember we talked about our diminishing and um, very low amount of water resource here. So in the past 20 years, the inflows into this Murray-Darling Basin system have halved compared to what they were for the past 100 years. So this is a massive shift in terms of, remember, already very dry continent, <laughs> already real issues, and it's going to get sort of further again. And over the next 10 years, by 2030, we're likely to see another 10 or 15% reduction in rainfall, but inflows, that means up to a sort of quarter or again less. So we're seeing massive shifts in the availability of water due to climate change and more and more people wanting to use this limited resource as well. You mentioned at the very opening of the discussion how the topic of sustainable development may or may not be at the centre of the discussion in Australia. What about the water market itself? Assuming everyone hasn't read your book yet, which is a shame because I would highly recommend them to do so, but assuming they haven't read it yet, what's the awareness about everything you just described? Look, and that's, um, that is a real, and one of the things which we've really uh, worked to do is to tell this uh, subject and issues in an engaging way um, because it is not understood. Um, it's Byzantine. It's been described as a priesthood. So all these various rules and markets and things are, uh, seen as overly uh, very complex and people just don't want to really know and get, get, get into this issue. But when you realise what is that's happening in terms of 
the social and economic impacts that it's having, the environmental impacts and the cultural impacts, we really must understand and tell this to a wider audience so that action can be taken to fix the market. Because if we don't, all those reduced flows and things which I was talking about, and just again, another figure, and I don't mean to use too many figures, but in terms of in those almond plantations I was talking about before, um, the amount of water that they are going to use in a year, these are those plantations I was talking about, is more than it's available in the entire system in a drought year. So that just sort of gives you a sense of scale about what's going on because as these trees mature, of course, they will grow, they'll use more and more water. And so what will happen is um, these the hedge funds and the banks and the people that are making the hundreds of million dollars will say, well, we don't need these anymore and they'll start to rip out those almond trees and those sorts of things, which actually is exactly what's happening in California at the moment in terms of the impacts that they're seeing over there at the um which is what which what happened here. So we'll have decimated all the firm, all the dairy farms and the farms up the system and we'll end up having decimated the farms that are down the bottom of the system as well. Well, that means that in terms of agricultural use of water, it was clearly negative. And on top of that, now the scarcity is reinforcing and you showed how water scarcity speaks in favor of the traders. And you're saying that you want to raise the awareness on the topic so that it eventually gets fixed or bettered. But is there any political will to do so? Because you're also giving some hints and recommendations on how to fix all of that. Do you think there's a chance of some of your ideas getting picked up? I would like to think so. Uh, so and we have seen some improvements um, in terms of the transparency of the market, particularly in some of the states. Remember, this is a fragmented market with fragmented rules. So recently in the state where I am is in Victoria, Uh, we've just put in legislation whereby now the biggest water use, users and water owners can be identified. Um, there's a register of the people who own the water, so at least people know who owns the water. Interestingly, um, just as an, as an aside, the biggest owner of water in Victoria is a Canadian pension fund that say, has a $1 company as <laughs> the, the front, which is I find quite fascinating. And there's further legislation or coming in, so individuals who are big owners of water will also be identified. And they're also working to regulate the brokers, so a big part of this whole system of the, the brokers, which are the real estate agents of the water system, and the regulation of these players. So we are seeing some improvements in that area. And I do think that the recent um, inquiry which was made by our Competition and Consumer Commission that I mentioned before, um, which the report went to the federal government, our federal government, back in March, way February this year, was really damning on the whole system and said that it was really um, needed major overhaul. So at least we've got some of the biggest institutions now saying that there needs to be shift Perhaps though one of the most sobering sort of things of what was, was is also found is that all this market manipulation and cornering of the market, which is done by the people that do that as the boiler rooms and the trading houses, it's not illegal. <laughs> so 
the ability to front run or and manipulate the market and those sorts of things is not illegal. So getting back to that problem of that regulation, so in some respects it's not their fault. They do what they do. It's the people that have to really make the shifts. And I think there's a number of things which we think we could do by one is making it much more closer to water in use if you're going to play in the market, slowing down the market. So this idea that we've got one trader and there's a really um, example in the book where we talk about the farmer who's standing on the top of a tractor trying to get a signal on their phone to make a trade versus the high-speed whiz kids with their gaming computers. Well, we've got to have a much level playing field and so slowing it down is another thing that we actually think could make a lot of difference. There's still some sort of fundamental problems though in terms of how we make those big decisions of sharing and allocating water against the many users, and this is not just the farmers and the environment sort of uh, benefits, but also the people, recreational users and fishers and those sort of um, users of the water and in Indigenous users of water. And we have to have a much better way of making that a collective decision about how we uh, make these sort of decisions and outcomes that we're looking to actually achieve. And we actually talk about things such as a citizen's jury um, as part of the book as well as a different way to come to a decision. And I think that Tim Flannery, he's an author that launched our book for us uh, recently. He said, well, I'm sure that a, that, that a citizen's jury would come up with a very different answer to the one that we've got at the moment. I just want to be sure I understood you right here. You mean that in everything you're uncovering in the book, this cornering of the market, this fact that a farmer could call and say, I need water at $200, And right now the water is at $100, but the brokers say, hey, you want it at $200? Well, I'll sell it at $200. The fact that there were bots very early in the market, which were just playing around with the choke because it was opening only a few moments in the day. I mean, and that's just some of the wealth of examples you're sharing in the book. And all of that is 100% legal. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. And that's, you've got to get your head around that. Like it's, yeah, that's... Um That all the normal sort of things that we would see in, in getting back to this point about being all the normal rules and regulations about exerting market power and transparency and front running and non-disclosure, <laughs> all those normal rules are, don't exist in this market, which is a fundamental problem. So, yeah, and that's that's got to change. And one of the other things that um, is the issue with sort of the way that we've looked at this issue in the past through the Productivity Commission or the Consumer Commission or the Com Competition Commission is they don't have the right tools to be able, able to follow the money and to actually do the sort of forensic inquiry um, that you need to do if people are really trying to um, hide things in terms of financial assets, especially when there's big money involved as well. So that's a whole different skill set. It's a whole different set of regulations. It's a whole different set of powers. Um, that are needed. And um, so that's why when uh, America looks to us in terms of where it might go in its water market, we say, don't follow us. <laughs> well, there's so much more topics in your book that I could spend another two hours just questioning you about the book. But I think that's a fair point to remind everyone that they have to read your book. So the book is called Sold on the River by Scott Hamilton, our guest and guide into all of that today, and Stuart Kelts, your co-author. So I'll put, of course, all the links to the book in the show notes. And now to close that deep dive, I have a crystal ball. And you can have 
a look in my crystal ball and now your book is out and you start talking about it and hopefully the awareness is going to rise a bit around that. What would you see happening in five years? I think within five years we will see another massive drought because climate change will continue to bite. So it's not a pretty sight that I'm seeing. Um, my hope is that there's been the sorts of movement at the grassroots or the, um, the community level like we've seen in climate and I suppose as have, we've seen in some sort of the climate strike movement and those things. That's the sort of things I, I see that, and that's what I hope to see in this sort of period in this crystal ball that you're talking about. And I do think that people and the world is becoming more conscious of what is going on and the importance of our environment and ecosystem and natural resources. So we are at a crossroads and um, I'm hoping that we do see the sorts of shifts and I'm really actually uplifted whilst um, I'm disappointed with Australia in terms of our work in the climate debates going into Glasgow um, this year. I am really heartened by President Biden and the other world leaders in terms of the seriousness that they're taking climate change um, and the sorts of shifts we're seeing now. So um, that does give me hope, which is um, what I look forward to seeing in that crystal ball. Well, I think that's kind of the perfect conclusion to have hope on the end of that discussion, which can be somehow disheartening. So it's really good to see that Okay, things happen, but they can be corrected. So what I propose to you is to switch to our last section for today, which is going to be the rapid fire questions. Sure. <laughs> It's time for the rapid fire questions. In that last section, I will ask you short questions, which aim for short answers. Of course, I'm not cutting the microphone if you need more time to explain, but you get the spirit. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Sure. So one of the projects I'm currently working on is a certification scheme for green hydrogen, which is really making hydrogen out of water using electrolysis, using lots of wind and solar power which is a really big part of our solving the climate crisis. Okay, so let me put a mental note here because I'm right now looking into making a deep dive into green and turquoise hydrogen. And there are several examples in Australia, especially around this turquoise hydrogen. So that's another discussion we have to have in the future. There's a global summit on this week, on the 20th and 21st by the Smart Energy Council that you might want to look at. It is free to register. It's got world leaders from all around the world, um, looking at the climate crisis. And yeah, it'd be worthwhile having a look at. You might get, and including me, I'll, I'll be talking as well. <laughs> Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Look, I think it's that um, no matter how passionate you are and how hard you work, um, the real, uh, you can't change the world by yourself. And really the key is to how you get many people to work in a common direction and get, make, get the best out of other people rather than just working harder and harder yourself. Is there something you are doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? I hope not as many Zoom calls. <laughs> be more personal calls, hopefully. 
<laughs> I get you. If we can have this follow-on discussion around hydrogen face-to-face -face in Melbourne, I'm all in. Oh, that'd be great. Or us, us friends would be good too. I'd be happy to come and see you. <laughs> sure. It's a nice place as well. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I think it is this um, ability to make um, large amounts of drinkable water from desalination using very low-cost solar power and wind power. That's where I think we're going to see some big shifts in the next five to ten years. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Yeah, look, I think that... Um, All our world leaders should commit to a certain number of litres of water use per day. So in, uh, in our part of the world, we had a target of 155 litres per person per day. Um, in America, they've got another target. But I think we should say they all have to live on 100 litres per day for a year. I love that one. <laughs> to make them appreciate the water. <laughs> I've been discussing regularly with Paul O'Callaghan from Bluetech Research around an initiative which is in the Netherlands, I think, which is called the 50 Liters Project. And they're showing that it's just a matter of technology and how you put that around you. And if you reuse that water, you never feel any scarcity despite being on 50 liters, which is the absolute minimum the World Health Organization sets as something a human would need to live with. Another fascinating topic. <laughs> Very much so. And last question for today, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that same microphone and as soon as possible? Yes, I do. Um, look, I would um, invite Michael Mann, who's a climate scientist in the US. He's just released a book called The New Climate War, and I know that you like books, but um, <laughs> I think that you'll enjoy. Um, then it'd be good to um, speak to Michael, I think. Well, thanks for the double recommendation for a cool guest and the cool book, which you're right. I think it's a good way to convey your message. And really, again, that's going to be my closing advice to everyone listening to that. There's a good reason why I was so pumped up for the discussion today. It's that I really enjoyed your book. And I think I read it in one pass, which is not that often because, you know, I have two young daughters, so usually I get interrupted. <laughs> But I managed to read it in one pass. It was pleasant, eye-opening by many yes. aspects, and I learned so much. So thanks for the book, and thanks for the discussion. Thank, thank, thank you so much for reaching out, and really lovely to talk to you. And please keep, keep in touch. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, and we might have that sequel discussion on hydrogen. I'll look forward to that. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.